Wonderful, thanks. Okay, fantastic. Cool. So yeah, symmetry theory of valence and yeah, just kind of defining terms. So um, so we're all on the same page. So basically there's this thing called the, the core affect, which is basically uh, what you get when you apply dimensionality reduction techniques to actually many areas of psychology is a surprisingly robust kind of uh, two dimensions that emerge. Um, you know, co-occurrences of words or, or even just like, uh, you know, descriptions of, um, of behavior. And basically, you know, these two axes, uh, basically arousal and valence, uh, seem to account for like, you know, something like 60% of the variance in terms of like, you know, what uh, information, you know, emotional words uh, contain. And I mean, roughly speaking, arousal is kind of the, the level of activation, you know, how energetic you are. And valence is how how good you feel, and I mean most of what I'm going to be talking about is about valence. You know that said, you know you know you need to also kind of consider arousal in, into the picture to kind of like know know what this is all about. And just a few examples, you know, you have high arousal, high valence. So that would be kind of a you know excitement and anticipation. Um, but you, you also can have like high energy, but, you know, not feel really good. And that would be kind of anxiety or anger, you know, irritation. Likewise, you have, you know, depression, low arousal, slow valence and serenity or, you know, peaceful, uh, blissful calm. That would be low arousal, high valence. Um, and, you know, this is just one example of like one of the ways in which you can recover kind of these dimensions of of uh, valence and arousal. This was a, a little study we conducted years ago, which basically we were giving people, uh, you know, people who have like experience with uh, all kinds of substances online, we were giving them uh, the survey where basically they were, you know, going to describe a particular substance, uh, basically along something like 70 different dimensions. And then I conducted factor analysis on, on that data set. And uh, interestingly, you know, like we we have kind of three core dimensions of of uh, valence or valence related uh, axes, uh, which kind of like give you a sense of okay, like what is the the space of possible effects that you can get from from some substances. Uh, there's there were actually like six dimensions that emerged, but like three of them are like valence related, and you know these are kind of like just uh, giving you a picture of it. So we have basically slow euphoria, which would be kind of low arousal, high valence with, uh, you know, top terms like calming and relieving. And, you know, the negative predictors of it would be something like anxiety producing difficult bodily discomfort. You know, fast euphoria is the sort of thing you get with uh, with stimulants, you know, energizing, sociable, the opposite of feeling spaced out and, and confusing. Um, you know, the, the other axis that kind of emerged was this notion of spiritual euphoria, that's the term I used back then. Um, I also use the term like significance or you know saliency. Nowadays, I would actually use the term uh, criticality <laughs> for 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 other reasons that uh, we we can go into. Um, but yeah, basically, there's this other kind of uh, axis of you know how you can experience intense valence with substances, which is different than slow and fast euphoria, which would be kind of the the psychedelic space, uh, and that you know gets. Uh, Marked with things such as like mystical, incredible, you know, life changing, uh, and the opposite of that is like you know trivial, self centered, or you know irrelevant, or something like that. Uh, this is just to complete the uh, the cube, and um, you know, in a sense, this is kind of just a change of basis. But you you still get in a sense the the valence uh, dimension kind of emerge out of this dimensionality reduction analysis. And if you were to apply just one dimension, you know, if you do like if you find just one factor, if you ask the the uh, factor analysis to just give you one factor, it's going to be the the valence factor. That's kind of the the part of um, uh, basically the the axis that accounts for most of the variance uh, for for the effects of drugs. Um, now I've got to say that you know I absolutely acknowledge that emotions are like far more complex and uh, intricate than just valence and arousal. Um, this is uh, the results of like my master's thesis where basically we were analyzing uh, this thing called mood updates, how people feel over time, um, like day after day. And uh, I was basically computing the transition, probabil the, the transition probabilities between emotions. And 
you know, you can do cluster analysis here or like finding attractors. And you'll see that there's like, you know, additional information. That said, you know, we concluded that a big chunk of kind of the additional information that is not valence and arousal is actually information about your trajectory in the valence arousal space. So for example, we found these, what we called gateway emotions, like for example, uh, feeling relieved and, and feeling hopeful, which basically uh, contain information that you were in, a, in the negative kind of depressive attractor and you're moving towards the, the positive high arousal attractor. So in a sense, emotions, the terms we use also give you, is not only where you are in the valence arousal space, is also basically what is your trajectory in that space. But in a sense, it's still valence and arousal. Like that still is, you know, how you can account for a very, very big chunk of like what, what an emotion is. Okay, so hopefully I've uh, convinced you of the importance of, of uh, valence, at least in, the, in this context. Um, now let's jump into the, the symmetry theory of valence. And uh, I mean, I've got to say, you know, the, the overall hypothesis and kind of the, the first argument uh, appeared in uh, 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 this, uh, yeah, really, really awesome work by my collaborator, uh, Michael Johnson, Principia Qualia. Um, and, uh, you know, he has a, a, a really, I think like a really interesting kind of skeleton of an argument that like points to a, a lot of like research threads that, that is really worth um, getting into. I highly recommend digging into this work. And uh, one of the things that it lays out is basically the kind of um, conceptual framework to make sense of like, okay, what type of thing valence might be. And I'll, I'll just kind of define a couple terms, um, which is uh, first qualia formalism. That is, if there's like one thing at QRI we are like married to, you could say, <laughs> it would be qualia formalism. You know, that is for any conscious experience, there exists a mathematical, sorry for the typo, mathematical object isomorphic to it. Um, and, you know, we can make kind of an analogy here to something like electromagnetism that, you know, we used to have like lightning and electricity and magnets and all of that seemed kind of uh, all sorts of, you know, s somehow thinly related, but like it turns out that there's actually just four equations of electromagnetism that ties together all of that phenomena. Uh, and you can compare it to something like, you know, Elan Vital, you know, the, the essence of life that people used to think that, okay, maybe there is the, some kind of a substance that like determines whether you're alive or not. And, uh, we would say that, well, that kind of fell through, you know, in the end, there's like molecular complexity under more molecular complexity. And there doesn't seem to be such a thing as like, you know, life itself, like it, life is not formalizable in the same way as electromagnetism is. But something that we would claim at QRI, or we could say something that we assume at QRI because we believe is a very generative frame, is that yes, there will be a set of like deep mathematical structure to consciousness. And in particular, if you kind of expand this into kind of uh, other areas, you know, we also think this is going to apply to valence, that there is going to be deep and rich mathematical structure to valence. And that is, valence uh, structuralism in this in this case. Now, um, uh, in Principia Qualia uh, by Mike Johnson, you know, he has kind of this argument for it. I, I definitely recommend reading it, especially if you have kind of the, the aesthetic of a physicist. Uh, I think you'll really like this work because it's, yeah, I think it's really, really good in, in that sense. What I, I'm going to go ahead and do now is try to kind of like give you um, a... Um, kind of like an intuition for it and then like the all the whole empirical argument also by the way if my internet is uh is uh is uh failing at any point let me know because i i have a phone i can tether to and continue the presentation so please please let me know if you <laughs> if i'm breaking out a lot okay so um importantly there are a lot of you know theories of what valence is and you know mike looked at the literature did a very deep dive into it and realized that they're usually unsatisfactory, or at the very least, they don't get at the true core of what you know, valence, like what an explanation for valence uh, should be like. So basically, you have this account. So for example, hey, valence is how the brain represents value, 
you know, but ultimately that's just a, a correlation, you know, value is a, a fuzzy abstraction, you know, likewise, some people think like, well, valence is you know, the presence of opioids in the brain, but hey, if you inject opioids in different parts of the brain, it doesn't always feel good. It actually needs to be injected in a very narrow range of, you know, stripes in the, in the pleasure centers. And otherwise it just causes, you know, strange feelings or, or, or wanting, but it's not, it's not kind of, uh, the, the signature of valence itself, uh, or for example, the pleasure centers, you know, but, you know, just because you're calling something the pleasure centers <laughs> and it's correlated with feeling good, it doesn't mean you have an explanation. It's not a very insightful, illuminating, let's say, account of valence. Um, so what could it be, you know, and, uh, and I would say, you know, I'll, I'll focus to a large extent on like what we might call bliss, which is just very positive valence. Uh, like, what is that? You know, what is very positive valence? What is the sense of uh, ecstasy, bliss, uh, intense happiness? And I think like, uh, you know, there's a lot of these kind of uh, intuitions. I, uh, there's, you know, definitely a lot of people think it's some, some kind of spiritual signal. And I, I wouldn't want to convince you out of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the truth is that there are a lot of different spiritualities and, and, they say sometimes like contradictory things. So it's kind of strange to expect that there's, you know, these like underlying universal um, kind of a spiritual signal that like, hey, whenever you're doing something aligned um, with spirit, you feel good because sometimes you can do something very different than somebody else and still have that feeling. Uh, also like merely chemical reactions in the brain. Again, not a super satisfactory explanation. Pleasure centers, health, uh, few prediction errors. Um, well, and in the end, I, I add, yeah, symmetry in consciousness, which is, yeah, what I, what I will be arguing. Uh, I, I also want to point out, and this is like, you know, super important, that valence is not the same as healing, and it's not the same as meaning. However, they're correlated. And I would also go as far as to say that high valence is necessary for healing and for meaning to a large extent that in a sense you can have a lot of like very high valence states that are actually very unhealthy for you uh, just an example would be you know methamphetamine <laughs> it can feel great but it's unsustainable and like in the into the extent that you know your your nervous system is self-organizing around that high valence experience it makes you kind of the center of your life and you know it's a it's a dopamine releaser you know it's obviously unsustainable you know you can't actually do that long term and expect good results whereas you know something like meditation or or even psychedelics because it's a tolerance mechanism is very very different you could say that yeah you know those might be high valence high meaningful and also healing experiences so i just want to say that you know high valence doesn't entail healing and that, in that sense, you might say like, okay, why why are we so interesting about interested about this? But I would say that high valence is a element, is a is a is a necessary condition for deep healing. And I would even go as far as to say that for a, a psychedelic experience to be deeply healing, it has to involve high valence in one context or another. Of course, you you may end up like processing a lot of like very difficult emotions, but ideally would be something that tr basically allows you to heal those difficult emotions and transform them into a state of mind that is basically has many more of the positive qualities. Um, and more so, you know, high valence, uh, even according to the Buddha, you know, it's an important factor for awakening, you know, of the seven factors for, for awakening, I would actually say about like five of them are like very connected to valence, you know, mindfulness, joy, relaxation, concentration, equanimity, they are kind of different flavors of, of high valence. You know, there they, they're different ways in which a very high valence experience can manifest. And, uh, you know, okay, like the Buddha says, these are, these are important things. Uh, and uh, even if you only care about awakening, enlightenment, you may also care about, okay, what is the mathematics of valence? You know, it might point you in the right direction as well. Um, I'll also mention there's a big difference between the recipe of a state of consciousness and kind of what you might call the, the review or the description of that state of consciousness. And I make an analogy with uh, cooking that, you know, if you have like cooking instructions for how to make a cake, you know, sometimes it's very counterintuitive what the 
cake is going to taste like, you know, like add yeast and, you know, a lot of things that like, okay, like you may not know exactly how it's going to actually affect the result. Um, and so like the recipe may look very different than the review of the state. So I would say for a lot of like meditation states or like even just like general life advice, this idea of, uh, you know, don't mindlessly chase pleasure or like try to satisfy all of your existing desires compulsively. Yeah, you know, doing that is not going to, you know, result in a sustainable high valence. And to some extent, um, kind of a, a lot of meditation instructions that say like, yeah, like uh, have neither kind of a an approach or a withdrawal response to, to emotions, kind of this equanimity, it sounds like it's a fully neutral experience, right? It sounds like it's it's an it's unrelated to valence. It's almost kind of cutting out valence. But I would say that's just the recipe. That is like the instructions of how you manage your attention in order to eventually change your brain to actually generate these very healthy, sustainable, high valence states. So I definitely want to kind of... Uh, uh, overcome this pre pre prejudice of, of thinking that, hey, like high valence is unrelated to spirituality. Like, no, I think they're like actually very deeply, intimately connected. Um, okay, so let's go into the, the symmetry theory of valence. Uh, I'll just read these, but we will go into more, more depth into all of these. So, you know, we talked about quilly formalism. There's a mathematical object whose features are isomorphic to phenomenology. Um, we believe that, yeah, harmony, harmony basically feels good because it's symmetry over time. And basically there's kind of this duality between symmetry in space and symmetry in time. Uh, we will go over pleasure centers. You know, the way we explain pleasure centers in this theory is that they are kind of a tuning knobs or there are these uh, bridges that basically when they get activated, they enable global large scale synchrony in the brain. And, you know, this is something that ultimately is very testable um, because if you can activate the pleasure centers or inhibit, you know, whole brain harmony, we predict that's going to actually negate the positive valence effects of the pleasure centers. And likewise, if you can induce, you know, large scale harmony without activating the pleasure centers or maybe even inhibiting the pleasure centers, we expect that to be a high valence state, you know, so it's a it's a cool testable interpretation of what uh, pleasure centers even are. Um, boredom is kind of an anti-symmetry mechanism. So like, that's why, you know, even, even if you look at a cathedral or something like that, you're not going to be happy forever. You're going to be happy for a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, your brain realizes that you're not learning anything and adds kind of this dissonance in order to make you, you know, move on into something else. Um, we are wired in such a way that, you know, what, uh, helps us reproduce, symmetrifies our consciousness. So like, it's not that, you know, high calorie food in and of itself is symmetrical. It's not, it's not that in and of itself is, is pleasant. It's more that the way our, our nervous system is programmed is, is such that when you eat high calorie food, it triggers high valence. And that triggered high valence is what would be symmetrical, not necessarily the, you know, the, the chemicals that you're eating and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go on. So uh, importantly, valence, we think, has kind of these three dimensions, which is uh, positive, neutral, and negative. And you can actually have like highly mixed experiences. You can have experiences, I don't know, like an example is like you're at a concert, enjoying yourself, but also you have to go to the bathroom and, you know, you just broke up with your boyfriend, you know, whatnot. It's like you can have these very complex mixed valence experiences where like parts of your experience are very pleasant, parts are very distressing. Uh, parts of those are very neutral, um, and uh, and that's fine. At, at the same time, you know, it still kind of collapses into this, like, ultimately, hey, are you having a good time, good time or not? Um, and uh, something that the symmetry theory of valence would say, and this is a pretty interesting kind of relationship, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll explain it in in a in a couple slides. Uh, this is just to kind of uh, put it out there in in your head to bounce around as we as we go on, which is. That, that we expect there to be a very, very intimate relationship between information content and basically the range of valence that you have access to. So in, uh, in brief, you know, very, very high valence states of consciousness, we expect those to be like very close to zero information. 
Whereas when you have like this, you know, close to pure white noise, we expect that to be like basically zero valence. And uh, hopefully this will make more sense as, uh, as we go along. These are just kind of some illustrations of this, uh, of this principle that like, actually we expect that some of the most negative experiences out there will actually be pretty close to very, very highly symmetrical. You know, I, I, I put this kind of like disjointed lattice at, at the bottom and uh, I would claim that um, something like a, a, a bad 5-MeO DMT experience is actually something like that, that is like this very regular, except for some strange disjoints uh, or imperfections that cause profound dissonance. Whereas like, you know, if you're in the uh, pure noise kind of like range, uh, it all feels blah. It all feels really close to neutral. Uh, and, you know, when we say, okay, like the, the state of consciousness is, is highly symmetrical, let's talk, you know, let's say 5-MeO DMT or Janus or something like that, uh, we expect this to actually show up in many ways. You know, that like, if you look at the biorhythms, like heart rate and, and breathing, that's going to show up, uh, symmetry is going to show up in some ways, that way, a different kind of projection. I mean, ultimately the formalism, you know, this mathematical object corresponds to consciousness is you know, it's not observable directly, at least not right now. So we have to kind of like rely on these projections, you know, these interpretations of what's going on, these ways of getting at this unobservable underlying state. And EEG, connectum harmonics, biorhythms are different ways of getting at it. And uh, and I'll, I'll show you, you know, at least empirically that it, it's all so far consistent <laughs> with the symmetry theory of valence. So, okay, here's kind of the, the big plan. Um, you know, all of these different projections of this underlying state. So we have basically this uh, stimuli. Uh, uh, yeah, basically these are kind of like visualizing also for, for uh, to give you an example. So like there's like stimuli, uh, basically more symmetrical stimuli leads to more higher valence. Um, then there's like the endogenous bodily state, you know, biorhythms as well. Uh, the CNS state, you know, the, the actual, okay, what's going on in your brain then the formalism, and then the phenomenology of valence. And basically, when you have high valence, basically we expect, and what we see, is that there's symmetry all across the board in each of these different ways of looking at the state of consciousness. So I'll go on and start with phenomenology. Now, um, I know that you know phenomenology is such a tricky thing. It's so difficult to do right. It's like so difficult to do, you know, make a lot of mistakes in phenomenology, get confused, the self-deceive. Um, so, I mean, hopefully the observations I'll, I'll relate to you uh, is going to, to show that, yeah, okay, like I'm, at least we're taking care of some of the, you know, failure modes of, of phenomenology. So, first of all, we distinguish between, you know, intentional content and phenomenal characters. So, like, if you smoke DMT and uh, you experience, you, you know, you say something like, well, I saw a dragon with with my own eyes. It's like, you know, that doesn't mean you there was actually a mind-independent dragon out there. And, you know, I take seriously, you know, your report that you saw a dragon, but I don't know how significant that is necessarily. On the other hand, if you describe, oh, and by the way, the dragon had scales that had a symmetry group of what's called the, the glide mirror symmetry group, and it had like as you know 17 hertz strobing effect it's like oh, okay yes we're getting more into the phenomenal character you know you're actually describing what it felt like not only what it was about and i would basically make the claim that you know these observations of symmetry being related to valence is about the phenomenal character i i don't care that much about you know, what was the journey? What was the content of the experience? I care more about what it felt like. What what are the features of it? And what we, we observe is that there's a deep connection here. So I'll just give you some examples, basically uh, introspect, you know, like the difference between massage and, and bodily pain. Like massage is kind of like um, these very, very pleasant, harmonious, um, like tactile patterns throughout your body that basically kind of like you give you these like very nice waves of, of, uh, of pleasure as opposed to like bodily pain. And bodily pain, if you, if you introspect on it, it's almost kind of like there's like pinch points and discontinuities and fragmentations and deformations in your, in your sense of self and, and the continuity of your skin or your felt sense of your inner organs. Um, basically, uh, I would make the claim that um, 
bodily pain always manifests in one way or another as a kind of symmetry breaking operation. Now, uh, definitely keep this in mind if you ever have a, a pain again, Ho hopefully not. Uh, also, let's say like anxiety versus relaxation. Uh, anxiety, you could almost describe it as constant prediction errors. You know, it's like, oh, did my heart did something strange? Like, is my leg, you know, positioned properly? Like, basically, it's a state of mind where like all of these little imperfections bubble up to your awareness. And that, I would say, basically is kind of like interrupting the flow of your attention and creating these like pinch points and deformations in the way you experience the world. As opposed to relaxation, where it's like, you're almost kind of just completely melted into it. And, and like, it's, it's so, um, uh, basically so regular, you can almost filter out most of your bodily sensations. And in that sense, yeah, I would argue it's a very symmetrical, has a very symmetrical quality. Um, there's also, yeah, this whole argument, uh, Mike brings up, which is the, the phenomenology, uh, concerning non-adaptedness, the non-adaptedness principle, which is that basically there's a bunch of things out there that feel really good. Uh, but that weren't in our evolutionary environment. Um, and, you know, those are hints. We consider those hints that like, hey, if something wasn't in the African savannah but feels great, it probably means that it's kind of directly hacking into the patterns of valence somehow. You know, we didn't evolve to filter those out or, you know, not get absorbed by them. Um, and yeah, here are some examples, but I'll, I'll go deeper into those. Um, now, there's also these exotic valence, you know, bodily pain, anxiety, relaxations. That's kind of like, you could say like normal valence is like valence that we're all used to. But I would say that also in strange valences, like valences in weird states of consciousness, they also basically follow this pattern that in some sense, symmetry explains their pleasantness. And uh, I'll give you some examples. So, so <clears throat> dream music. So... I've had the uh, pleasure or or displeasure, you could say, of uh, having had a lot of sleep paralysis. Uh, also, like lucid dreams, you could also experience this in lucid dreams. But basically, uh, something. I mean, if you've had a lucid dream where you were like making music or or you heard you hallucinated that there was like a radio playing, you will notice that like, oh my gosh, like the music can be beautiful, like incredible, and like it's music. You know, maybe you have heard before, maybe not. Maybe your brain is generating on the fly. But it has a quality to it that is extraordinarily, you know, hedonic and pleasant. And uh, I remember, like, in, basically studying this on myself, like, over, like, many lucid dreaming experiences that, like, at first I thought, like, oh, my gosh, my brain is just unlocking this ability to create awesome harmonies and melodies. But then I ended up realizing that even if I just make a kind of a an om, kind of this, like, meditation sound, even if that sound is extremely simple, the quality of the sound in the in the lucid dream is profound. I mean, it's almost kind of a surround sound, like 360 surround sound and, you know, stereoscopic and full of reverb and richness. And I would, I would claim that it's actually, yeah, because during a kind of like a dream state, your brain is more resonant. You can kind of enter into these like very, very resonant attractors. And it's that quality that is what basically makes the music so compelling, not the melody. And, uh, you know, actually, if you transcribe the melody, the melody may not be very significant. It was how it sounded like that was like so profound in the music, in the, in the dream. Then you have like, you know, meditation, like uh, even these images, maybe, uh, I don't know if this is cheating, but, you know, like representations of meditation, like high attainments and so on, you know, they usually come with these beautiful symmetries and whatnot. But, uh, but no, I mean, like if you examine the, the phenomenology of, you know, jhanas as how, how they're described, there, there seems to be kind of this pro projection of like less and less information content in your experience, you know, going from having all of your attention concentrated in one point to then like, you know, the experience of completely perfectly smooth, boundless space to then just, you know, pure consciousness. And then like, you know, the experience of neither nothing nor, nor something in a sense, like that's kind of like approaching the limit of zero information. And then people report that, you know, these Jana experiences they are, you know, they're not pleasant in a conventional sense. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, eating ice cream or something like that, but like they're still very, very high valence. They're blissful in an exotic way. 
But, you know, I, I do want to point out that there's this fascinating, strange relationship here between low information content and kind of the, the blissfulness and the healing quality of the state. Um, and then there's like, yeah, psychedelics. I mean, like, uh, again, like, I, I don't want you to focus on the, on the intentional content, like what was the experience about, you know, what you thought, uh, which of course can influence your valence, but it's more about the, the phenomenal character that like, there's this phenomenon of tracers. You move your hand around and you see kind of like copies laying around and, uh, in a sense is giving a temporal depth to your experience. It's almost kind of adding a new dimension of time where like basically qualia can pile up. And usually if, if the trip is good, you'll notice that basically these tracers are basically in harmonic relationship with each other. And like that is kind of the, the essence of what makes them feel so good. Likewise, you know, there's psychedelic uh, texture repetition. You know, you, you stare at a piece of grass on LSD and it starts to symmetrify. And it, I would totally say this is exotic, exotic valence, because you ask the person and they will say, you know, the ground was symmetrifying. And I don't know why, but it was awesome. There was something really cool about it. And like, like, why would that be? You know, it's and, and I would say, like, you know, and from my interpretation here, our interpretation, uh, psychedelics are, in a sense, unlocking the valence capacity of your visual cortex. It's kind of transforming your cortex into a pleasure machine. Basically, it's allowing it to exhibit these profound symmetries. And that is what actually is making them feel so compelling. You know, people will struggle to explain why, but why were the visuals cool? Why were they interesting? And when it comes down to it, I think it is, it is the symmetry. Uh, interestingly, you know, any of what these are, these are called the uh, uh, wallpaper symmetry groups. There's 17 possible ways of, you know, desolating a two-dimensional space. Um, from subjective reports, we know that any of these can be experienced on a psychedelic. Like the, the ground kind of like chaotically will, you know, arrive at one attractor of symmetry. It could be any of these 17. And they all feel great. They're all extremely aesthetic and beautiful and 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 and, and blissful in one way or another. Um, but it's kind of a, a testament to just how general this effect is. Um, more so, you know, I, I would make the claim. You know, this is obviously a strong claim, but it matters for something like you know therapy, um, you know, psychedelic therapy. We recently saw, yeah, this fascinating research on uh, psilocybin for major depression and so on. That, you know. And that this, a lot of these effects are mediated by whether you had a mystical experience or not. And I would basically say that if you did have a mystical experience and it was healing, I would bet that while you were having that experience, the sense of space and time was basically extremely, extremely symmetrical. And, you know, here is like kind of, kind of like this is why it's so confusing because you come back and you say, well, I saw Jesus and like, you think that you got healed because Jesus, I mean, I don't want to dissuade you from that view, but I, I would basically ask you like, okay, but when you experienced Jesus, what was the feeling of the space and time? And they might say something like, oh, it had a beautiful light. It had this beautiful harmony and rainbows. And I'll claim that if you introspect on that, it's actually the quality of space and time that is healing and blissful. And, you know, the the meaning, the religious meaning is something that is helping your mind basically concentrate on that space and taking it seriously as a way of kind of propagating this uh, negentropy <laughs> in your in your nervous system. Um, now, another place where this shows up super, super clearly, I would say phenomenologically, it's uh, on DMT. And uh, I definitely recommend this uh, article. Uh, we wrote uh, basically charts, charts the DMT space. And uh, there's basically you can know a lot about like where you are in the DMT space by basically uh, describing like what is your energy level on the one hand, and then what is the information content on the other. And I would say, you know, DMT states that have like close to zero information content would be kind of these geometric, uh, perfectly repeating, you know, symmetry groups, either 2D or 3D, whereas, you know, like more chaotic states would be kind of like in the middle. And basically the energy level would be like a matter, like it's a matter of dose, basically kind of the height is like very, very dose dependent. But then like the valence, I think it's very, very dependent on actually where in the information content you find yourself in. Uh, and here again, like I'll, you know, there's kind of this diagram that basically the most blissful experiences you, you may have on DMT are going to be on these kind of honeycombs and 
perfectly symmetrical patterns. And uh, the most unpleasant experiences are going to be just right next to those, are going to be kind of dissonant honeycombs. Whereas, you know, when you get to kind of the narrative and like, you know, machine elves and all of that stuff, that would be like very mixed. There's like both dissonance, consonance, symmetry, anti-symmetry. It's a very complex experience. Now, um, yeah, and like, you know, the information content, we, we think of them as basically attractors by in feedback systems that like you may act, you may end up in a chaotic attractor, you may end up in a limit cycle or a fixed point, and that will determine like you know how much information content the the state has. Um, interestingly, this also can be used to basically describe the difference between DMT and five MEO DMT. Um, that basically we think you know DMT tends to be have a lot more information content. Uh, so you have like these very rich patterns and actually I would say competing synchronies, you know, like on DMT, there's like all of these different, slightly different frequencies that are competing for your attention and creating a narrative out of that. And that is like a very mixed experience It's both blissful and distressing at the same time. Whereas 5-MeO DMT, which is described as like far more powerful emotionally, uh, basically tends to give you this sense of pure space, like the feeling of, you know, you, the insight into emptiness, the feeling of infinite, boundless uh, consciousness, very, very little information content, and yet it's so emotionally impactful to, to such an extreme extent. And uh, interestingly, I would say, you know, the reports do come out that, you know, on 5-MeO DMT, you may experience the you may have like the best experience of your time or you may have the worst experience of your of your life like it's kind of like bimodal like it's either amazing or it's extremely bad often it starts out really bad and then it gets amazing we would describe that in terms of kind of this annealing process where basically it starts up with dissonance basically over time things like synchronize and you do end up in this kind of all of your nervous system is entrained to the same frequency and that feels very very blissful Whereas DMT is always kind of in this like mixed state. It's very difficult for DMT to be pure negative or pure positive. It's always like this mixed mixed state. So I would say, yeah, this is a, kind of like the phenomenological. Uh, and uh, I guess I, I'm two, two thirds of the way through the presentation. So uh, then I'm just gonna kind of like, yeah, walk you through like empirical, empirical evidence, you know, like, so we were talking about phenomenology uh, you know, that's one of the projections of this uh, formalism and its symmetry. They're like, hey, if there's symmetry in the formalism, it's going to manifest in some forms of phenomenological symmetry. Uh, and likewise, you know, if you use external stimuli in order to generate a state, uh, like let's say watching a movie, you know, playing music, playing stroboscopic stimulation, there's like a lot of evidence that basically indicates that the symmetry of the stimuli uh, is basically the leading factor for how pleasant or unpleasant the the resulting state is. You know, we have, yeah, kind of like all of this, uh, all of this research in in vision, um, and yeah, this is just some example. Like it's it's so stunning, right? Because like even if you know the effect, you know, you still get the valence response. You go to the cathedral, is like like okay, I'm not gonna be, <laughs> I'm not gonna get high valence. I'm not gonna get high valence. You still get the response. It's pretty pretty automatic. You have this. As long as it has like this rich, deep symmetry, oftentimes, yeah, it's going to be very beautiful. There's something very compelling about this. Uh, yeah, just just some random pictures to kind of give you a sense of this. Um, yeah, it's like, okay, like why does this feel good? It's very, it really has very little to do with our ancestral environment. Um, anyway, uh, this is like such a robust effect that, you know, with the symmetry of faces, for example, even face paint can be used to modify the valence. So like if you if you don't have a perfectly symmetrical face, but you add, you know, symmetrical face paint with like beautiful patterns, you're going to be judged as more beautiful. It's like, it's just such a strong effect that it can actually modify your perception of how beautiful somebody is. Um, and likewise, if you, you know, uh, add like asymmetrical patterns, you look less beautiful. Now, this, I wouldn't say this is like that strong evidence because this actually does have like an evolutionary reason, you know, like symmetry in faces as a marker of mutational load. So I don't put that much stock in, you know, symmetry of faces being that relevant, but, you know, symmetry in other forms uh, is where like, I think it's so, so stunning. 
But then you also come to basically symmetry in audio, basically regular rhythms and, uh, and uh, harmony is basically, yeah, the, the leading predictor for whether a sound is going to be pleasant or unpleasant. Um, you know, there's this uh, Helmholtz the big idea, which, you know, he was the first one to figure out, like, why, you know, uh, playing two notes in a piano that are one semitone apart, like, feels, like, unpleasant. And it's because the harmonics are basically within what's called the critical window, generates uh, beat patterns, and the beat patterns, we can describe them as basically symmetry breaking operations in the, in this, in the waveform. Excuse me a second. <coughs> and, uh, and those uh, symmetry breaking operations in a sense cause irritation. So basically the more beating there is in sound and the more beating across the spectrum, the more irritating and distracting and rough the sound is going to sound like. Whereas when you have like these harmonic relationships, you play like one note, one piano note, and another at an octave of difference, basically the harmonics line up perfectly. And actually the, the, the sound is very compressible because you don't have this extra information of like where all the other harmonics lie. There just, it's just a harmonic sequence. And that is universally you know, described as like a more, uh, more, pleasant, more pleasant sound. Um, and yeah, when you add up all the harmonics, you get kind of these interesting curves. The, the height here is the amount of dissonance. So basically when you have like a a relationship of one to, to two, basically an octave, uh, you have like zero dissonance and like that feels really good. Now, music is very complicated and like it, we have to factor in the boredom mechanism that you get bored with like, if you just play the same octave over and over, you get bored and that becomes kind of a, there's an inner sense of restlessness and dissonance. But uh, if you just hear it for the first time, that's a super, super strong relationship. Um, these are, yeah, just examples of a piano chord, uh, dissonant sounds. Uh, oh yeah, I guess I, I did have, well, I, I can send you a link to all of these uh, sounds uh, after the presentation, but basically I have, a, I have some links in a, for, a for a SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud account um, where you can kind of uh, get convinced that like, oh gosh, these are actually really, really bad sounds. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, you know, it's not that I'm saying they're bad. Like if you ask a hundred persons, like 99% of people will say they're awful. Uh, <laughs> um, and likewise, you know, you, you, if you reverb, I mean, reverb uh, basically symmetrifies any waveform. And uh, reverb is like almost kind of this hack that like you take almost any dissonant sound and you add reverb to it, it's going to sound a lot less bad, a lot less distracting, irritating, and so on. So this is uh, kind of comparing uh, the sound of a baby crying, which by the way, like in our analysis, it shows that, I mean, babies crying, it's almost like their sound is optimized for dissonance. Like it's almost kind of like as dissonance as it, dissonant as it gets uh, for good evolutionary reasons. You know, it has to be distracting and, you know, catch your attention, bring the desire to stop it. <laughs> um, but you add reverb and like to give you a sense, that's like if, if the baby was in a huge cave and you get kind of all these echoes averaging out of the beat patterns, it sounds way better, way less distracting, probably not good for a, from an evolutionary standpoint. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a fascinating uh, 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 kind of a transformation you can apply to any waveform. And, uh, and here, I mean, uh, yeah, just want to kind of like illustrate that valence can happen across the spectrum. So there, I also have this file, and you're welcome to listen to it after the, to the presentation, where uh, you can have basically consonants anywhere in the spectrum mixed in with dissonance anywhere in the spectrum, mixed in with noise anywhere in the spectrum. Um, so... And you and that ends up basically creating like these very mixed states. So basically, when I say like, oh, I had like a mixed experience, mixed valence experience, that uh, under constraints, right? Like we don't know <clears throat> if the positive part was in the high frequencies or in the low frequencies. We don't know that, and that's why you know, kind of the full picture of valence would also include basically the spectrum for positive, negative, and neutral valence. You know, like you can have like high frequency. Uh, pleasure, you can have low frequency pleasure, uh, etc. Uh, so that, that kind of explains like why there's a tremendous diversity of possible mixed experiences, you know, even though ultimately they still come down to symmetry, <laughs> you know, deep down, they all can all still be explained with symmetry. Um, now, endogenously generated symmetry, this is fascinating research um, that basically when you have kind of these 
biorhythm coherence, and there's a way of computing biorhythm coherence very related with a musical consonance, where basically, yeah, um, like an association between like regular, like, you know, breathing and trained with uh, heart rate variability, uh, basically is reported as just like much, much better positive mood. And it's one of the things that, you know, long-term meditation achieves, that meditation entrains these biorhythms and basically makes them interlock with one another. And, uh, and that is reported as giving rise to positive mood, which is, yeah, kind of an interesting finding and, and very consistent with uh, STV. Uh, yeah, here are just some, some quotes. Um, uh, cool. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, you know, heart palpitations, I mean, you can, it's similar to kind of uh, anxiety that, you know, if you have like this metro, regu usually regular metronome and it's uh, failing, um, is like generating these imperfections. Yeah, that gives rise to like unpleasant states of mind. Um, and uh, the large, you know, I'm sure like heart disease is like terrible for your valence. Uh, and likewise, you know, uh, meditation is a wonderful tool for heart disease because it allows you to basically overcome those imperfections and and still feel good despite despite the problem. Um, in terms of yeah, other endogenously generated symmetry, you know, like I would say orgasm and flow. Like orgasm, you know, it's it's powerful generator of endogenous resonance. You know, it's the entrainment uh, of motor systems to neural hallucinations to synchronizing feedback processes across multiple functional networks. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, an orgasm. There's a deep, deep, deep level of synchrony and, and symmetry across the nervous system. Um, I, I highly recommend introspecting on this, not to get into your sex life or anything. But no, I mean, it's something you can actually pay attention to, and like, it becomes very obvious. And likewise, like flow. I mean, like there's this evidence of like, yeah, basically, symmetry is deeply related to flow. You know, two physiological metrics for measuring flow are uh, corticomuscular uh, coherence. And also degree of coupling between neural EEG waves and EMG oscillations uh, of muscle activity. So there's also these kind of like interlocking patterns, um, lower information content, uh, more symmetry that, yeah, it's a strong predictor of flow. So like, hey, go figure, flow is also symmetrical. Um, okay, let's get into symmetry in the brain. So this is kind of the an other projection. Like, okay, if you look at the central nervous system, like of high valence states, how does that show up? And, uh, you know, meditation, like all over the place, like basically pretty much any kind of meditation, uh, if done for a long enough time, leads to some kind of EEG coherence, like whether it's gamma coherence or delta coherence or alpha coherence, which might depend from one meditation to another. Um, yeah, they, they all generate that. And coherence in EEG is intimately related with symmetry. I mean, basically... Two signals are coherent basically when they're both uh, reflections of a shared signal through a reverb pattern, meaning that they're encoding the same information just through a different filter. Again, like deeply, deeply connected to symmetry. <clears throat> a fascinating study from 2019, I recommend seeing, which to me was really stunning, it's stunning just how clear the connection with the symmetry theory of valence was, was this study of a uh, uh, first and second Janus, and basically the, the interesting patterns that emerge in them. And one of them is this like seizure-like activity. Um, now, seizure-like activity is usually in the four to, I think like two, uh, three to five hertz, and it doesn't have harmonic structure. I mean, most the seizure doesn't have like a, you know, it doesn't have its harmonics together with it. But the type of seizure-like activity you see on Janus does have harmonic structure. And like the the, uh, yeah, the, and the picture I'm sure here is basically the, you know, the Fourier transform of the independent components. But you can see there's like a very very clean 5.6 hertz, together with its harmonic of like 11.23 hertz. And yeah, I mean this is kind of stunning. Like why would this happen? And you know, yeah, the self-report is like yeah, you know, this is a, a marker of feeling really blissful. And like again. Without the symmetry theory of valence, this is like just super surprising and strange. With the symmetry theory of valence, it's like, oh yeah, actually you're, you're hearing a really great symmetrical attractor of your brain um, and uh, sustaining it. So that's going to feel good. Uh, even, you know, ketamine showing high levels of uh, gamma coherence. Uh, 5-MeO-DMT, the, the only data set I'm aware of, of uh, EEG and 5-MeO-DMT shows 
coherence across the spectrum, not only gamma coherence, but also beta coherence and especially delta coherence. Again, why on earth, you know, like the symmetry theory of villains would explain this, would say like, yes, this is uh, expected. Other theories might struggle a bit. Uh, now, I've got to say that uh, just because you have high coherence doesn't mean it's going to be high valence. We expect also very, very negative valence could also be high coherence, except that when you have total coherence, then we expect that to be always positive valence. Again, it's kind of that relationship because you could still have like high average coherence, but basically have kind of a half of your channels coherent in certain frequency and half of the other channels coherent in a slightly different frequency that might actually maximize dissonance, you know? So just, just average coherence is not enough. You also need to kind of like tell whether it's in harmonic structure or not. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically, um, yeah, the pleasure in the brain uh, seems to be kind of this distributed effect. So there's uh, that also, you know, from our point of view, it would mean like, yeah, you know, it's actually a whole brain phenomena. Uh, and yeah, this is about what uh, I was mentioning about the pleasure centers that from our point of view, I mean, there's like this like research of like, okay, if you try to synchronize clocks, you try to synchronize neurons and you put them in a geometric grid. Uh, and it's like, if it's large enough, you're not going to usually get like full scale synchrony. Basically, you might have kind of these patches of synchrony or like traveling waves of synchrony. But if you add also kind of these random connections across the network, and reducing the synaptic path length, then you can achieve the entire network to enter in synchrony. So basically we think of the pleasure centers as kind of these bridges that are like, um, in a sense, like uh, lowering the average synaptic path length across your brain and therefore enabling uh, synchrony across the brain. And that's what we, we think. We think why the pleasure centers basically feel good when you activate them. Um, okay, I'm getting to the, to the end of the presentation. So I'll just like talk about like a few near enemies. I've put enemies in quotes because we actually, you know, they're, they're, we admire these people. They're part of our research lineages. Um, and like, you know, I think like they're a very, very key component of like any good theory of, of consciousness. But uh, I think like when it comes to valence itself, there's uh, some explanations in this space that are like really close to the symmetry theory of valence, but they're not exactly what we're getting at. Um, so there's like this whole account of like computational efficiency. Hey, like the brain likes computational efficiency, but uh, in a sense, you still have to explain like what the like if, if you say like okay, the brain likes computational efficiency. Like, what does this liking um, uh, manifest as? Basically, we we use this argument of like passing the bucket. That like ideally, your your theory of valence should explain what valence itself is, not only when it gets triggered. You know, like, and these theories of computational efficiency, energy efficiency, we would claim, they're telling you, like, okay, under one, what conditions positive valence gets triggered, but it doesn't tell you what positive valence itself is. And that's what the symmetry theory of valence is, is getting at. Uh, so, yeah, these are some of the issues with those, at least as, a, as complete theories. Uh, finally, okay, like counterexamples. Um, basically, yeah. Uh, there's interestingly, you know, like a lot of, uh, there's this yeah whole theory I recommend reading, uh, neural annealing, uh, Googling it or, or clicking on the link when I share the presentation. But basically, even like very neutral energy that is like neither, neither has like harmony or dissonance can still give rise to very positive feelings, basically because um, it can give rise to this annealing process. And that's actually what we believe is going on with psychedelics, that like, Psychedelics gives you what Mike would call semantically neutral energy, uh, and that gives rise to basically this entropic disintegration, a term from Robin Carhart Harris, the entropic brain hypothesis, um, which then gives rise to kind of this search or self-reorganization that basically will settle on these you know, basins of symmetry. And it's those that feel good. It's not the energy that feels good. It's the end result, the attractor that it takes you to. Um, and this explains, I think, like, you know, why even somebody likes hot sauce? You know, hot sauce is kind of this unpleasant stimuli, but it can lead to euphoria. You know, it can lead to this heightened state of energy. And if you introspect, I mean, if you introspect on the euphoria of, of, a, of hot sauce, 
is not the the unpleasant pain in the mouth. It's actually that it raises all of your energy, your entire amount of um, the intensity of your consciousness. And you can then notice these resonant waves. <laughs> and it's those resonant waves that feel good. It's not the, the hot sauce itself. So there's, there's kind of like a step uh, that basically uh, separates one from the other. Uh, and then, yeah, I'll just very quickly, briefly describe like one way we're trying to test symmetry theory of valence is not the only way to test it. I would even argue that, you know, the argument I have presented is itself kind of a potentially strong argument, but like ideally, you know, we generate novel predictions and this is one of them, which is that we basically expect that the very positive states of consciousness will have like a harmonic relationship. Uh, basically, a consonant the relationships between the brain harmonics, yeah, the work of uh, Selenatasoy. Um, and yeah, basically, this kind of algorithm of like quantifying the amount of consonants in brain harmonics, which is something we, we're working with uh, and like hopefully we'll get results soon. Um, but yeah, basically, we, we anticipate um, that, uh, and again, like if this is true, the symmetry theory of valence would be validated. If it's not, I, I think like it doesn't invalidate it because there's many ways in, in which it can manifest. But basically, when you have like harmonics that are in a consonant relationship with each other, and those are the main drivers of your experience, we expect that to be basically pleasant, um, uh, like you know, euphoric. Uh, whereas like when you have harmonics that are dissonant with each other, they, they generate these intense beating patterns. So we expect that to be like unpleasant and be described as unpleasant. Again, we we don't know. But like we we want to check if this is true, um, and uh, yeah, just a, a couple testable predictions based on this, which is that we expect uh, psychedelics to enhance the range of valence. Basically, psychedelics enhance energy across the board. Just all of the harmonics have like more energy. We expect that basically some of those combinations will be just very consonant and reported to be very pleasant. Some of those will be very dissonant, uh, reported to be unpleasant. Um, then SSRIs, you know, there's a lot of research on SSRIs. They kind of are blunting effects. They 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 cut the extremes of valence. So we expect when it comes to harmonics that like the SSRIs will basically be more noise, less consonants, less dissonance. Uh, MDMA, we expect it to be basically kind of a stable attractor of a few uh, resonant modes that are like very consonant with each other. Uh, stimulants would be kind of high frequency consonant. Opioids would be low frequency consonants. Again, this idea that like, hey, you can be in a good state, but that under determines whether, you know, the symmetries in the high frequencies, the low frequencies, and you know, these these would disentangle them. And yeah, just kind of a, a these are the last uh, two or three slides, I believe, which is like, yeah, the kind of a case study, which is like, yeah, SSRIs, roughly speaking, we interpret them as being like noise inducers, um, which is why things like, you know, orgasm, is less intense, uh, crying is hard. I mean, crying itself is a kind of like dissonant and sometimes consonant kind of a resonant state. Uh, you, you feel like kind of like spaced out and music enjoyment goes down. So yeah, we think of SSRIs are almost kind of like listening to a white noise machine <laughs> along your life. So it's gonna cut off the extremes. It's gonna blunt both like very positive, very negative. Um, and it's gonna it's kind of like center you in, in the neutral valence. Um, Whereas like psychedelics, they basically kind of purify, uh, intensify your harmonics. And in that sense, you get to have like more pleasant and more unpleasant states <laughs> on both extremes. Uh, just to remind you. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, again, introspect, I, 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 I compel you to next time you're in a psychedelic, having a mystical experience, introspect on the quality of space and time of, of basically you. I, I suggest that you will probably be experiencing these kind of like beautiful ripples that are like in harmonic relationship to each other. Please email me if this is true or not true, but that's that's basically <laughs> the experience so far. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's the reason why this, this can feel so, so amazing. The future of mental health uh, basically ideally would be that uh, we can identify, okay, what are the sources of dissonance in your nervous system? And then basically find the shortest path to like the smallest change possible that will give rise to sustainable consonants in your nervous system. You know, whether this is going to be with meditation or a psychedelic session or yoga uh, or, 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 you know, biofeedback, uh, there's probably like a shortest path from a highly dissonant dysfunctional state to a sustainable consonant state. 
And uh, with that, yeah, I just want to say uh, yeah, thank you to other people in the team of QRI, and uh, thank you, uh, Robin and uh, and Shamil, and uh, and all of you guys for uh, <laughs> for attending these. And yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> well, that was remarkable, truly remarkable. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, I'm. I'm a bit blown away, Andres. Uh, yeah, one of those talks, and some of you will know what I mean. One of those talks. Uh, yeah. <laughs>